everybody, welcome to Talking Good. I'm your host, Britt Hotelling, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Penny Harris, founder and CEO of Renewable Philanthropy. Penny is a nonprofit development veteran with decades of experience working in the philanthropic sector. Penny, welcome to Talking Good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have our conversation. Yeah, and likewise. So what are you doing currently with your company, uh, Renewable Philanthropy? Well, I'm trying to get it off the ground, I guess. I um, was a, a more standard fundraiser for years. Uh, I started out as a volunteer leader in the community with the League of Women Voters and then moved to um, professional. And over the years, I kept seeing that it was more about money and it was the focus on money that began. I began to see the loss of humanity, because when I did a lot of the volunteer fundraising in the community, I I was businesses lots of times that would support for the league. Of course, it was debates and things like that. And so I would call up businesses and they would tell me, Yes, and they would help me get others, other businesses that they wanted to work with together. And I did my very, very first fundraising event was a debate between two, the governors of Maine and the U.S. senator candidates. And the one that won when he was, when he had our debates, he was 30 points behind. This is what he told me. And then he won the campaign and he credited the debate. So all of the people that were involved with that, I mean, they were, he let everybody share in the success that he had from that debate. So without that, um, who knows what would have happened? He might still have won, but it, it was the beginning for me to see that how fundraising impacts a community. It's connected. I had couples come up to me and say, thank you so much for asking me to help. I felt so good sitting here and knowing I was part of making this happen. So that's kind of how my brain got ordered. And then through professional and through the years working on staff as a consultant, the the money focus didn't feel as good. And I felt that people, working in an organization, you're the fundraiser, you just go get the money. And so there was a certain diminishment of me as a human and other fundraisers, not just me. And so I hit a place where I said, what are you going to do? Are you going to quit? <laughs> or are you going to do something? So I got a coach to help me and I decided that I would start and the focus would be on the donor and the and the fundraiser to yeah. have both really enjoy the experience and it meant that fund that donors would renew and that's where renewable philanthropy comes from it comes from wanting the donors to renew and that the fundraisers are really the people that connect the community and the people with the mission. And so the mission becomes the most important thing because it's the only reason people step up and want to help. Yeah. That was kind of a long. <laughs> no, that was great. And I, you know, I'm glad, thank you so much for sharing that with me. You know, 
It makes me wonder what drew you initially to the nonprofit sector was, do you feel that it was a calling of some kind? That's interesting you say that because I think the calling was from the political side with the League of Women Voters. It was like people in the community weren't voting. And so I wanted, I started having candidates nights and I got churches to support or a city hall would let me have a, a, a debate, uh, not a debate, but a forum of say people running for the city council. And I just saw no interest in, in people, the voting, especially for local elections was low. And it just bothered me that we need leaders. And I don't know where that came from. You know, I, I think uh, my father had been a leader in this very small community I grew up in, and I just had that as a value. And one time I went to the, we have three in the small town that I lived in, we had three television stations. I went to all three and I said, will you interview the candidates running for city council this year? And they said, two of them said no. And one said, if you interview them, we'll do it. So I got other league members to interview each one of the candidates. And after it was over the next year, all three stations had interviewed all the candidates for city council and I didn't do anything. <laughs> I was out, you know? So I think that's what kind of caught me. It was the community and that Sometimes people help to raise money for the mission that you're, whether it's to vote or to, for healthcare or for taking care of animals. It's all a mission that we care about. And I think the mission was community development for me, community involvement for all of us. That's awesome. And that's yeah, a perspective that I think sometimes gets lost when we talk about philanthropy, you know, with political fundraising in particular, it almost seems to be on its own separate island from, you know, fundraising for causes like homelessness and, you know, religious fundraising and things like that. What do you make of that sort of mental separation that seems to have occurred between political fundraising and yeah. um, cause? That's, that's an interesting question. I, I think that it depends on the person who wants to be involved in whatever mission. You know, now that you mention it, I'm remembering the very first campaign where I actually was trained a little bit to, to raise money was in a church. I belonged to a church. They were gonna have a campaign and then I was on the committee to help raise the money. So I got some training. I mean, it was years after that before I, I ever did anything, but I'm just remembering, you know, so I've had that kind of link. And the uh, there is another thing that I've thought about. And that is when I was little, probably 10 years old, let's just say, and my father was willing to give me an allowance. Now, this was a long time ago. So the allowance, and, and we didn't have that much money, was 25 cents. And the only way I could get that quarter for my allowance was if I gave a nickel of it to the church. And I kept thinking about that. And one time I started to remember sitting in a pew in church and the, the collection plate go by you and I put my nickel in. And I remember feeling like I'm a part of it. I'm part of the community. I'm helping make whatever it is I'm helping. 
to do, you know? So I think that also impacts me, but it's the wanting to belong, wanting to help, wanting to be a part of the people around you, you know, that you're stepping up and doing your part. Yeah. And you know, that, that brings to mind for me, there's in academia, there's been efforts to define philanthropy since it's an emerging field and an emerging field of study. And one of those definitions was put forth by Robert Payton and Michael Moody. And they mm-hmm. defined philanthropy as any voluntary action for public good. And I wonder, with having mm-hmm. the experiences that you've had, would you define it that way? Or do you think it's too general? Well, it's general. But I think when you step up and you help somebody, however you do that, it helps that person in the community. You know, it's like if we have hungry people in our community, we need to see they get food because it hurts the community to have people who aren't healthy or people that aren't getting an education. It's how we belong. And even if we're raising our families and participating in a normal way, we're buying things, we're attending things. You know, if we get an animal, a rescue animal, we're helping the animals in our community. Yeah, I do do think that philanthropy is all networked, entangled, is all part of our community. Yeah. And what you stated it in a general way, but Anywhere you go, dive into it deeper and more specific, I think you'd get the same thing. I can't think of something that that we would do as a community that couldn't be considered part of philanthropy. Yeah. Not right now, anyway. <laughs> it always comes at 3 a.m. or something, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. <laughs> um, so, you know, that... That makes me wonder, with that sort of definition in mind, how do you feel that philanthropy comes up for you in your day-to-day career now? It came up in a very community-based way early in your career, but um, now that you're working primarily as a consultant and interviewing thousands of donors, what have you come to view as the manifestation of philanthropy in your day-to-day work? Well, I think that's, that's where I started to split with it because it was all money. And I used to, I had a client that I was trying to help him build relationships with his donors. You know, I would sit with him. I would do things to actually try to help him. And he resisted. He said, no. And it was the first time I quit the job because I said, you're not going to have anything. If I make my relationship with your donors and then I leave, you don't have a relationship. And those donors won't be giving to you because they won't feel any connection with the people who are running the organization. So I think when I came up upon that, first I was going to quit. I said, oh, I'm tired of this. And then I started thinking, maybe there's something that I've learned that I can use. How? What is that? And actually, um, I read Lynn Twist's book, Soul of Money. Yeah, And I thought, oh, that's a connection, you know? And so then I took it in a different direction from her, but that's where I, through the work, I designed mission-centered fundraising, which, and is based on individual donors. It's 
for fundraisers. It will change the relationship for fundraisers and for donors because the priority is to renew and to have the fundraisers manage the donor relationships for renewal, you know, so that it's, it's, it's a relationship building thing. And the mission is the, is the connection. And that means nobody gives money just to give money. There's a motivation that comes first. There's two steps. There's something you want to do to help. And then you decide how much you want to give or how long you want to give or whatever the decision is. And that's a, that's a decision that would, can be a more of a transactional thing once you know what you want to do. But I think the fundraiser really needs to work with donors. I, I start with donors because donors come into organizations through everybody. It might be through a board person. It might be through a person delivering, a staff person, a CEO. So once they're a donor, then it's the fundraiser has to step in, build the relationship, keep you know the, the, the connection so that the donor feels that they're part of the team. Hey, I give, I'm supporting this mission. I'm, I'm part of it here. No matter how much I give, I'm part of it. Yeah, I give what I can give, you know, so that when we're respectful of the human being and honor their generosity, however much, which depends on what they can give, then it will continue and it will grow because you know, like I do, when people have really good feelings about things, they want to help and they stay where they are, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I would expect that you, like I, have had experiences where you know that they didn't see you, that they, you, and you end up feeling kind of not important enough. So that was the, the mission-centered fundraising seemed to me the way to bring everybody, the staff, the board, the beneficiaries of the mission, the donors, and the fundraiser together as all part of a team serving the community. Then the community is benefits. Say if you have a symphony and you've got musicians, you've got the musicians who teach in the school, so students get help to have student concerts so that it grows their interests. Restaurants and hotels benefit because people come to town to go to a concert, or people move and businesses move because there's a symphony there. So I think the more the fundraiser can show the value of the mission they're supporting and they're getting support for, and that keep people together, it's that sense of community again. It's that sense of helping. So money is what you do. It's it's the result of a mission everybody wants. That's how I've come to look at it and work, you know, with with people. Now my work, I became an accredited coach. So now what I want to do is work with fundraisers and CEOs to establish the mission-centered fundraising as the it's an annual system that the fundraiser can use so that they stay in connection with individual donors. And, and that's going to differ from every mission and from whatever size the organization is. So 
I would work to coach the fundraisers on how and to, and to support them drawing up their own system that would work for them. Then people will renew and then the fundraisers will have less emphasis on finding new donors. So when they don't pay attention to renewal, then the need to find new donors goes higher and the focus on money goes higher and the mission gets lost. And the fundraisers are so busy trying to find new people or find information that connects people with people that you're not building, we're not building relationships. So that's where I really, my my joy comes in working with fundraisers and seeing them lift their skills and feel good about their their work. Because yeah, I think and- it's beautiful work. I think we're we're bridge we're a bridge from the organization and the mission to the community. Yeah, makes and- sense, right? Absolutely. And hearing you say that makes just makes my heart sing because you know, and um <laughs> so I'm trying to, you know, remind myself that some of the most uh, pressing issues that, you know, philanthropic work and fundraising in particular faces in the nonprofit sector is based on a very like clear, almost disconnect between those of us who work in the field doing this work as fundraisers and with other fundraisers and individuals mm-hmm. who are maybe more program focused or don't come from that type of background. And something that you've mentioned a couple of times that really resonates with me is the lack of humanity that seems to get kind of pushed in maybe some larger nonprofits, but certainly in smaller nonprofits as well. And I'm wondering, you know, how does that manifest for you? And what do you see as potential solutions to that? Because it's, I think it's something that um, no matter where you've worked in your career, if you're a fundraiser, you've, you've definitely felt the pressure to bring in money and valuing money over humans and people who really care about the mission. Yeah. Well, I've been taking that apart and I've been working. That's part of the group that that where we met to, to talking with fundraisers i'm i'm trying to open up conversations to see um how how i can support the kind of change that you're talking about because we are stuck with the money particularly ceos who feel the pressure of meeting the budget and they're looking at the budget and most of us get so focused on the money because and and when we're trained, we're trained how to ask for money, when to ask for money, how much to ask. We're trained all about that. We're not trained on how do we learn about our mission? You know, I'm working with actually my nephew. He wants to he's a, a CEO of an of an organization and he wants some help with the fundraising and he's was asking for, okay, Penny, he said, I, I just want to know the structure. How do, how do we put this together? Which is exactly the way I was trained, you know, and I know that's out there. And that wasn't a stupid question for him. That was a, that was a real question. And I said, well, sit back a minute, think, what are you selling? What are you asking people to support? Why is it important? Who's it for? And I said, just 
you know, I, if you will, just get a journal because these ideas are going to come floating into your head when you're eating dinner or taking a walk or doing something. So you can write that down. So then you begin to see what it is that you have that you're asking investment from the community. So then I think fundraisers inside, a lot of fundraisers are telling me that they feel isolated, that it's all about money, so they don't know the budget and the programs and program development very well. And so I think the fundraisers have a lot to give in those areas because they know people. If they can keep the donors, they're building a community of support and they can share kind of what the response is and what they care about. And so I think having a fundraisers on the budget development or program development committee would be a big help to the fundraiser. So I really see change and that's what I'm working for. And that's how I'm trying to work to see how to do. I'm trying to learn how, I mean, we're doing it a lot, but we're not conscious of it. We're more conscious of the money and we get lost in have I met the goal. And if you go to a visit a donor, when you come back, the only question the staff asks you is, did you get the money? How much did you get? So, and, and when we're recognizing donors, we recognize how much money they give, but we don't find out why was this mission important to you? Because it seems to me when the community heard, would hear donors talk about why they care, that makes others care too. So that that strengthens the support of the mission. I yeah, mean, I there was recently, I can't think of her name right now, but she gave billions of dollars to different organization that had to do like Boys and Girls Club. And she was offended somewhat talking about the money she was giving. Mm -hmm. And she kind of wanted, I, I interpreted the articles I read, sounded more like what she wanted to do was talk about why what it was about the Boys and Girls Clubs, she wanted everybody to know about and be supporting, you know, to raise beyond her. And I just think, you know, when we have capital campaigns, if we honor how many years people have given instead of how big the gift is right now, you know, mm -hmm. that we're putting our values more where I believe they really are. I understand the fear of not having enough money, but when that runs us, it impacts how effective we can be too, I think. Yeah, that there's, <laughs> no, I totally agree. And it, it brings up this interesting sort of observation that a lot of nonprofits are really run on a scarcity mentality. Yes. And that can be very damaging, um, not just for the staff that's working inside the organization, but also that tends to come through in the way we talk to beneficiaries, to donors, and the way we um, approach <laughs> things. And that can be off-putting. You know, I, I, um, I tell you about a, a TED talk that I had, but first I just want to say, yes, you're right. And I think that scarcity mentality is part of what is created from our isolation. 
Nobody wants to talk about fundraising. And so we're somewhat isolated. So in in the fear that we're not going to make it, we're not going to get enough, it's going to sink and it's going to be our fault. So it's kind of a, a combination in there because really what we all want is connection and community. And if we have that, the scarcity, I think, will will drop. But that's a huge step. That's a big trust thing that has to be built. Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, there's a very interesting TED Talk from Nippon Meta. And it was a few years ago. It's called Designing Generosity. And he was in Silicon Valley and he was making a whole lot of money in California. And he quit because he decided he wanted to see about generosity. And he created, and he talks about this in his TED Talk, about how why he didn't wouldn't do fundraising. And so he was trying, he wanted to experiment, try some things and see what would work. So he did, and maybe you have heard, have you heard of Karma Kitchen? I have not. Okay. Well, it's a website now and you can see it. But what he did, he and a couple of buddies formed, organized this Karma Kitchen. They worked with a couple of restaurants or a restaurant. Most people worked uh, without pay as a volunteer and everybody could come and eat and they would have their dinner paid for. And then they would be invited to pay for the person who comes in behind. So he didn't know this was his idea of fundraising. So he didn't know if it would last one weekend. He was prepared to walk away in two days. There are now 24 karma kitchens in the world. Nice. Isn't that That's something? So great. <laughs> and and there is a there is um there is a website, Karma Kitchen, and his his TED talk is also on I I get it on YouTube. That's where I listen to it. One of the people, one of the stories is the man who developed PayPal wanted to go to Karma Kitchen in California and he got he went to the restaurant. It was too long a line. He didn't have time to walk to uh, stay in line. So he went into the restaurant and he gave them a huge sum of money. He said, this is the greatest idea. I love it. And he gave the money and left. And I think to me. That's what ignites this feeling that we all want to help. We all want to be connected in some way. And fundraising can really facilitate that, but not so much if we just spend on the money. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you you bring up, you know, the term generosity. I'm currently a, a student with the Lilly School and one of my classes through, you know, the concept of generosity and from a biological perspective, you know, women, humans are wired to be generous by nature. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting, because then when you take that out of academia, and you apply it to the real world, our focus seems to be on this idea that we're all inherently selfish, we have movies like The Purge. Um, There's the book, The Lord of the Flies, which doesn't represent what happened when there was an actual Lord of the Flies. And (laughs) I wonder if that part of our culture is really kind of permeated the nonprofit sphere as well. And that's another level of pushback that fundraising gets, because then it inherently gets compared to sales, which sales doesn't have the best reputation. No, but you know, I think salespeople 
for profits, let's say for profit organizations are really learning more about relationships, you know, and we always think of car dealers as, or, or realtors being ripoffs. But the other night I had trouble with my car and I had a sign that was coming up that my tires all needed air. There was trouble with my tires. So I called and it was six o'clock at night. And she, I said, I'm driving out because I was told if I put my car in the garage, when I wake up in the morning, that it's got all four tires are going to be flat. So they stayed there, you know, and it was, the, it was the best interaction. She did get me a car to get home with. And the next day she said, wait a minute, I'll make a plan for how we get this done and I'll call you. I mean, it was just such a nice interaction, mm -hmm. just like you would have, you could have with fundraising or with anything, because I've been a buyer there, <laughs> you know, they want me to buy my next car. They're just like, we want the next donation or gift to come from the same person who just gave. Yeah. I think there's, there's a lot of resources, you know, out there. I, I think it's interesting that you're studying that too, because I think it's important because I think it's people like you and the work you're doing that is going to be a part of this change. We, we have to get off just focusing on the money. The money is just the vehicle to getting it, you know, I think it's Adam Grant had the book, Give Givers, Takers, and Matchers. Hmm. And it's for profit, but he he brings all of that in, which to me, it was one of the resources I had that I read that motivated and made my brain kind of be the way it is today around, around fundraising. Because I think giving and sharing and making, helping each other is part of what makes us happy. It's happiness. You know, how good you feel when you help somebody. And then when you get, I mean, I had, I had a organization that I really love and I still do, but their fundraising sucks, frankly, because it was, I gave a gift and, and I got Six months later, I got an email telling me that my name would be in the program next year and that it was a tax deductible donation, but there was nothing in the email that's, and I know these people, you know, they know me. And that email thanking me was just obviously an official, just something that I could use with my taxes if I wanted to. I mean, it's just, it's crazy when we are like that. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it brings up this other question for me, because I, I wonder if there's something to be said for hiring issues across nonprofit organizations, sort of generally, it seems like there's, in my experience, there's not a lot of career nonprofit CEOs. And I have to wonder if that has some kind of outsized influence on retaining development professionals. The average director of development tenure is approximately 18 months, which yes. is a relatively high turnover rate. I think that's one of the highest I've personally ever read about. Obviously, I haven't read about every profession, but it does seem very yeah. high. <laughs> it is very high. And I think that's part of why we take our job. We think we're going to be in a, a mission we really care about and, and have a good experience. And we get pushed into the money. And then we, then if we get good at getting the money, 
then other people are trying to hire us. We then go out. It's we lose our own humanity. If you listen to some of the discussions about fundraising, it is so humanless. <laughs> I mean, it's just talking about how to get the money. And I don't say that in any, I did that myself. I had conversations where, boy, I could tell you how to get the money, but it wore out. And it that was, that was just not it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's the difference you can make that that is so important, I think. It's come to be more important to me. And I understand, I mean, I quit when I could just see that I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be helping them because I'm gonna get relationships that are gonna have nothing to do with the organization. And then I went, I another interview I had in Texas with as CEO of a national organization. And he had given money to this organization I was working for and they wanted an endowment campaign. He had made a big gift in a capital campaign. So they sent me back and he met with me. He clearly loved the organization. He was in Texas, this other organization was in Maine. The organization was in Maine. And he said to me, you know, I'm going to give money now in Texas. He said, I've got to do it. This is my home. This is where I am. And I want to support uh, missions here. He said, but, and he looked me right in the eye and he said, but if there's any problem, financial problem in that organization, I want the CEO to come talk to me because I don't want it to go down. When I went back and told that to the CEO, he was so mad that I hadn't somehow gotten a better response from the CEO. He said to me, you did a good job. I had a lot of people tell me how much they liked your interview, but you didn't understand the organization and I, he would not give me any kind of recommendation moving forward. And he hired somebody else to do the capital campaign. I mean, <laughs> I was shocked. It made no sense to me whatsoever. So people can be very money oriented. He wanted me to come back with some money. And when I didn't, he was mad. Yeah. Wow. I'm actually really shocked that that happened. I, I have to say, I, I have to wonder, you know, outside of having conversations and the amount of time that that takes to almost sort of reform an understanding of what philanthropy is and what it isn't. Are there solutions to that that you can see? Well, I think I think for me, what I'd like to see tried is a mission-centered fundraising system where where you get in. In that system, it it is about the donor and the fundraiser and the mission. It is about working together to produce whatever it is the mission is producing for that community, whether it's a musical theater or animal care or health care or education, whatever it's providing for that community. And I, because in my experience, people grab, like if you get into, and this is for only individual donors who give, as you know, 
75, 80% of all the money, billions of dollars every year. So you take the, the foundations are managed by the people who own the foundations. So they're telling you what you have to do to get support from them. Businesses are the same events are structured to do that. Individual donors are just kind of floating in the ether, you know, and you connect with them or you don't, or somebody else connects with them or you don't. So what I envisioned was this system that, and, and right now, the idea in within an organization, at least the ones that I've worked at, the fundraiser doesn't really manage the fundraising. The, the CEO might jump in and build some kind of relationship or tell people something or decide to have an event and say to the fundraiser, you've got to run this event. So the fundraiser cannot manage individual donors if they have no time. And if they, so, and I was listening to the a discussion recently where people were talking this were a group of fundraisers earlier this week, and they were talking about something to do with managing, I think it was like annual fund or something. And, and they were all, they couldn't, be, they were just jumping around to different aspects of that rather than having a system. You know, if you talk about foundations, you're going to be talking about a, a way and a system. It might vary from foundation to foundation, but you've got a system. You know how to put through the foundations. If you're individual donors, there is no plan. It might be on an individual basis, or you've got direct mail people, or you've got telephone people, whatever, but there's no plan that you would do with your current donors, because it's your current donors, whoever gave in 2022, that that group of people, if you want them to give in 2023, they've got to be managed and they got to be managed over 12 months. And it seems to me when you make the make this system, which focuses on the mission, that there's more interaction, they get better informed, they feel that they belong and are connected, and it's meaningful because they understand about the mission. If they have those three things, they're going to renew. And so what I would like, what I would, I feel that this mission-centered system is at least a piece of beginning to solve this. Maybe it will be that, but Nobody that I have met yet has made a commitment to renew donors. And that what that mission centered would do is would you would aim for like a for-profit 80 to 90% renewal of your individual donors. So you'd have to have a way to do that, you know? Yeah. And I'm very, I really adore the idea of mission centered fundraising. It intersects perfectly with donor centric you know, language and marketing initiatives, and yeah. it just makes sense. And, you know, I wanted, I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, philanthropy on an individual level, and how important it is for us to, you know, kind of invite more people into our field by explaining, you know, 
if you're doing something for someone else, you're a philanthropist. If you're working to you yep. know, make the world better in your own way, you're also a philanthropist. It's not just the hobby of the mega wealthy. And I think a part of that understanding is two things that have sort of been left out of the philanthropic conversation. And those would be, you know, what it means to receive and, you know, what it means to practice philanthropy towards ourselves and fill our own cup, you know, if only to help others in a more efficient and effective way. And I'm wondering where you land on those two concepts. I think we, if, if you're, first of all, if you're just a fund, if you're a fundraiser, we need to be supporting whatever it is we want to support, including who we work for. I don't think that we can ask other people to support something we don't support when it appears that we do. We're getting paid for it, you know. So I, I definitely think on our le level, it's like my father taught me how, you know, that part of whatever money I have, I need to give away some of it to help what whoever, you know, he he was wanting me to give to the church. And I did that with my children, to with my two daughters uh, somewhat. Both of them will give now. One in particular did something with her her first child, her daughter. I don't know if she still does it or not, but she was given an allowance just like I did. And then a part of that had to be. So this, my granddaughter had $3. She was taking, she wanted to give it to the animal rescue. So my daughter took her to the animal rescue so she could actually give the money to them. And she had the best experience. Of course, they were all excited to see this little girl <laughs> giving money. But then when I came to visit, because they live in Oregon, when I came to visit, she had, she said, hey, Nana, come, I want to show you. And so she got the, the computer out to show me pictures of the cats that she was helping take care of. So, I mean, that's, that's in her now. She was like, what, four, eight, nine, ten years old? I, I don't remember how old. So, yes, I definitely think that we need to be, to learn how wonderful it is to help our community to work together. We can have differences, we can argue, but the goal is to figure out a way to do something. Maybe it's not going to be just exactly like each person wants, but you put something together. And I think that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of philanthropy, you know, is helping us get beyond ourselves. And, and that's, we still have to take care of ourselves too, for sure. Yeah. And how do you practice, uh, you know, philanthropy towards yourself? Well, you know, I did, I just been starting that. I know that's so funny you asked me because you know I give certainly and but I started thinking about what what was just be special to me you know and sometimes it's a walk on the beach you know for no you know I think well I got to go out and exercise and I got to do this and I got to do that but it was like no I think I'm just going to go sit on the beach and be in the beach for a while yeah, I used, I mean, when I, I used to ski a lot, I did, you know, biked, I did a lot of things 
that way, which I loved. I'd just hop on my bike and I'd be off, you know, and, and I love it. Now I have knee, I have knee issues that, that limit some of that physical stuff. So I've just been looking for things that I can do that are, are fun for me and make me feel good about me, you know? And some of this is the work that I'm doing right now that I've shared with you. You know, I, I get a lot of joy meeting fundraisers and learning how they feel and what their, you know, interests are for sure. Yeah. Just trying the other day I decided I don't, I hadn't gone to restaurants alone and I decided cause I live by myself. So I thought, well, I'm just, if I want to go out to a restaurant, I'm just going to go. And I did. And it really, it took a bit of courage to go out by myself to a restaurant, but I did. And I had a good time. You know, I was surprised. <laughs> it was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this more regularly because this is fun. Because you meet somebody, usually you talk to somebody. So, I've, so it's not very you know, exciting. But <laughs> oh, no, I think it's great. I One of my favorite ways to sort of renew myself philanthropy is, you know, just going and doing things by myself, going on little solo adventures or going to a movie uh, by myself. That was my favorite for a long time. And when I lived up in the Bay Area, there was a local community theater that I spent a lot of time at. So something about art is just so fulfilling and, you know, consuming uh, different forms of it is absolutely delightful. And I happen to consider food a form of art. So I'm really yeah. excited for you to to have done that. Yeah, I think, and that's interesting that you said that it's it's you do it by yourself because I think there is something about your self connection when you do it by yourself, and then you know you like it or you don't like it or you know you've you've got that connection with you. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. So, Penny, you have so much experience with fundraising. Is there any one particular story from your career that you think really speaks to the need for mission-centered fundraising? Well, I have a favorite story that I love with my I, my first capital campaign that I did. Oh, perfect. And it was at the local medical center. And I don't know if I've shared that with you before. I was the first director of development and then my boss passed away. And so I was on my own. So I really had to make my own way through. And I decided it would, the, the campaign is just to build the sixth floor of the hospital, which would be for the children, a new children's center care, care place. And so I started talking to the children who's who were really sick and who spent time in the hospitals and learn what they like and what they did and just kind of how I could talk with people about um, why this was important. And this little boy I talked to, he said, he, I asked him about it. He told me some things. I showed him some pictures of what it was, the new one was going to look like. And he said, oh, are they really going to do that? And I said, well, if we're able to raise the money, you will have a new place to go. And he's, he's looked at me and he looked up in my eyes and he said, oh, I hope I live to see it because he had cystic fibrosis. And our biggest donor was at the end of the campaign was the author Stephen King. 
And he was invited to cut the ribbon. And I asked if that little boy could cut the ribbon with him. So he ended up cutting the ribbon. And I stood there just feeling such joy that that little boy got to do, first of all, to see the new center and then to be a part of the opening. That's so that's story. one of my most favorite heart things, you know, and I, I feel that the, the thing that I really want to work with fundraisers is to build their confidence, to build their sense of the importance of the work they're doing and supporting the deep relationship building. Like I wouldn't do another capital campaign study. I would coach a fundraiser to do the study so that the relationships and all the interviews would be done with the fundraiser, not with me. And I've done it just once, and uh, it, the fundraiser loved it. She's still there. She had a great relationship with donors. She's had the skills where she's developed very lot of comfort. She's, she's the resource for people in that organization. So that's, that's what I envisioned is that we, because you know, fundraisers are very capable people and we're not being used in ways that I think would really serve fundraising. Yeah. And keeping donors. That's the whole point. Yeah. Fantastic. So what current projects do you have going on currently and how can, you know, our listeners reach out to you? First of all, with LinkedIn is probably the easiest way. My my email is penny at renewablephilanthropy.com and I'm I will answer when I hear from people. What I'm working on now is I do have a, a group of fundraisers that are meeting every couple of weeks just to share and talk and evolve our conversation. And I am designing a 30-minute free micro-webinar to really introduce mission-centered fundraising, what, it's, what the results are, who it's for, why it's important now. And from that, if people, there's no, that would just be an exploratory thing. If people like it, fine. If they don't, that's fine. But if after that 30-minute workshop, if they are interested, I will have a at least a four-part one-on-one coaching to help them to begin to establish mission-centered fundraising for individual donors in their organization. Awesome. Thank you so much, Penny. It was such a pleasure talking with you. Um, thank, thank you for you. stopping by and talking some good. Well, thank you very much. And it was fun to talk with you too. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, everyone, that's it for this episode of Talking Good. If you enjoyed it as much as we did, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and give us a five-star rating. I'm Britt Hotailing, and I'll see you next time.